Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, I'm Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime Crime New England. England. What's up, everybody? Hello, welcome back to another episode. We're so glad to have you. This is going to be a very factual, yeah. dense episode. Um, as you might have gathered from the title of the episode, an airplane crash, that's not true crime. Listen, it can be. And this sure is. And if you listen to the episode, we'll tell you why. Yeah. Because mistakes were made and people died as a result. Yeah. And it's, you know... I personally, everyone in true crime and has their certain interests and things that they don't care about. And we've talked about before, like, I personally am not a huge fan of, like, mob or mafia-related right crime or, like, drug cartel. It's not really my thing. Airplane crashes, definitely one of them. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but it is. No, I'm the same way. And I like a bunch of, you know, different aspects of true crime to break mm-hmm. it up. Right. Um, I threw this on the list with, you know, we have, like, fires and mm-hmm. alien crashes and different right. you know, different kind of disasters that still fit into the realm of true crime that breaks up the murder and the serial killers and the... But this is a very interesting case. It's very information-dense. But yes. um, in our research, we break down the terminology and stuff for you guys so it's easy to follow. Yeah. Just stick with us because it's a very interesting case. Yeah. And I think by the end of the episode, you, like me and Katie, could probably figure out how to fly a plane. Yeah. <laughs> or at least land one because uh, we learned so much while doing research for this. For sure. We got some great resources and it's just something about airplane crashes to me has always been something I've been really into. Not like into, that's not a great word, but like it's always been very fascinating. Yeah. Um, So this was definitely interesting to research and the fact that it happened right here in New England Mm -hmm. makes it so we can do it, which is great. Yes. And this is also the worst airline disaster in New England history to this day, so that's why this case is absolutely huge. And prevalent. Yeah. Goes in New England. Mm-hmm. Right? That's like the title of our podcast. <laughs> it's crazy how we run into these similarities with things. It just blows my mind. Small world. Small world, literally. <laughs> but this case is so interesting. And, you know, this reminds me of a great podcast, just to plug. I didn't use it as a source because it didn't cover an episode about this. But it's called Black Box Down. And it just basically talks about plane crashes, hijackings, that kind of thing. So it's cool. pretty interesting. Yeah. So, you know, if plane crashes aren't your thing I'm sorry you know but it is interesting so we're still going to talk about it Mm -hmm. and I'm sorry (laughs) I'm sorry that I'm not sorry it's a thing deal with it because deal with it we're interested in this it's such a cool case there's 
some cool aspects to it. Yeah, Looking and you'll into, learn a lot. You'll learn a lot. It's very educational. I know we learned a ton. Fuck yeah. So that's awesome. And without further ado, we will be covering the, the crash of Delta Flight 723. Naturally, as we normally do, we'll be going over our sources, and Katie, I would love if you could go first. Sure. Naturally, I will start off and say that Wikipedia was a source. <laughs> okay. As well as the Delta Flight Museum, New York Times, GroovyHistory.com, and then Media.com. Hmm. There was an article published by someone with the username Admirable Cloudberg. This dude knows his shit. Yes. This write-up made it a lot easier to kind of make sense of what happened. Mm -hmm. um, he's actually an analyzer of plane crashes, and he's done a bunch of threads on Reddit as well. So if you guys want to look at more of his work, um, he's a genius. Very cool. Phenomenal. I had Wikipedia as well. Mm -hmm. Most of my stuff was pulled from this medium.com article, like you said, by Admiral Cloudberg. I got New York Times, groovyhistory.com, which is a great website name, yeah. Um, library online, and a few articles from CelebrateBoston.com. Love that. Let's start with just the day of and some background. It was the morning of July 31st, 1973. Delta Flight 723 was scheduled to leave from Burlington, Vermont, to go to Boston, Massachusetts. Flying the plane was a man named Captain John Strail. He was 49, and first officer Sidney Burrell. Additionally on the plane was a former pilot, his name was Joseph Burrell, and he was in the cockpit observing because he had been on leave for a while because um, he was diagnosed with mild Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. So basically he was re uh, working to become recertified as a pilot. So he was observing. Yes. So him observing and becoming recertified was pretty important because in his absence, there was a merger between Delta Airlines and another company, Northeast Airlines, that they had done in 1972. The merger allowed for Delta to acquire planes, pilots, crew, and routes. In July of 1973, Delta had just finished adjusting the radio systems and instruments in the cockpit on their newly acquired DC-9 planes, which is what this model is. Um, it was really important that all of the planes match the ones that they already had. Northeast and Delta did things a little differently with some of their settings and equipment. Northeast pilots who were part of the merger and now worked for Delta had also just finished training on the new equipment and all of the changes. Right. We'll get into why that was important later, but um, our friend Joseph Burrell with mild Parkinson's is observing, so he's getting caught up to speed. I don't know if I would really want someone with Parkinson's to be flying nope. my plane. Nope. I'm sorry. No offense. It is a, a, you know, Parkinson's is, you know, the marked symptom of Parkinson's is the shakiness of the hands. It's mm -hmm. tremors. Um, so I don't know if I really want someone piloting a plane in which that is what they're struggling with, you know? I'm on the same page as you. <sighs> but anyway, um, so Captain John Strail, like I said, he was an experienced pilot, mm -hmm. and he had over 14,800 hours of flying under his belt, so he was pretty experienced. Uh, First Officer Sidney Burrell, he was also experienced. He had his to total flight hours being 7,000, except he was new to flying this DC-9 plane, mm -hmm. which is the plane we're going to be talking about. Um, 
so that, you know, they're learning this new plane and I think that's totally fair. There's no other way to really learn without getting your hands in there and physically doing it, whether it be simulations or it be in the sky, whatever it may be. So I think, you know, that's okay. They were learning every, there was changes and they had to learn how to do it. And that's what was happening here. Mm -hmm. And this was a new merger. This was a new change. So I would be a little nervous flying on that plane, but I'm sure as a passenger, they had no idea. Flight 723 was through Delta Airlines, as we discussed, and it was a scheduled domestic passenger flight that went from Burlington, Vermont to Logan Airport in Boston, Massachusetts. It occasionally stopped in between at Manchester Airport and Manchester, New Hampshire, and this is exactly what happened on July 31st, 1973. The flight wasn't supposed to be crowded. It was just supposed to be going from Burlington, Vermont to Boston. The first kind of dilemma here of many is that a lot of Delta passengers were stranded in Manchester, New Hampshire because there was some flight cancellations due to bad weather. So the plane leaves Burlington, Vermont, goes to Manchester Airport and picks up 45 additional passengers wow. in order to go to Logan Airport. So this puts them at 83 passengers and six crew members on the plane, including our three pilots we just talked about. Right. So 89 people in total. And what's crazy to me is that now, I know this is 1973, so I'm sure flight routes have changed. However, Manchester to Boston is like an hour drive. Yeah. Let alone a flight. And then Burlington to Boston is not a very long flight either. Mm -mm. Like at all. So this is crazy to me. And it makes sense because just six minutes after they took off from Manchester, they began to prepare their descent into Boston. Mm -hmm. Like, what a quick flight, you know, for these people suck in Manchester, but it sucks for those people in Burlington who are like, all right, quick flight, let's get this over with. And it's like, just kidding. Quick stop. But so, like I said, six minutes after taking off, mm -hmm. they're getting ready to descend. Okay, efficient. Love that. It's 1973. Flying is terrifying. Whatever. And this was around 11 a.m., give or take a few yes. minutes. Um, this is when the controller from the radio tower began instructing the pilots of Flight 723 to make a series of turns that would eventually bring them into the right position for landing on the runway at Boston Logan Airport. I think this makes sense. I think we don't need to, you know, like, before they land, they talk to the controller who clears them for landing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Even, Easy peasy. Yep. Even back in 1973, that was a thing. Mm -hmm. Great. At this point, Flight 723 had been flying at about 3,000 feet above the ground and going at a speed of 220 knots, which is significantly faster than what it was supposed to be for this part of the journey. I did out the calculations. Which is amazing, and I, God bless you. Um, so 220 knots is roughly 253 miles per hour. Jesus. For... Our friends listening that don't know why this is bad, planes should be at about 150 to 160 miles per hour with their speed to start the process of landing. Makes sense. So they're going a little over 100 miles per hour over what they should be to land. Ugh. So this speed's making it really hard for the air traffic controller to move quickly enough and give the instructions ahead of time because this plane is like hauling ass. They're going way too fast to make... Way too fast. Even kind of a landing. And they're still too high as well. Yeah. Yep. 3,000 feet is 
I mean, obviously, like, planes today, I don't know where it was back in the 70s, but planes get up to 25,000 feet, give or take, you know, a little bit more, a little less. Mm -hmm. And so them still flying at 3,000 feet was a significant height above where they needed to be to land safely. Yes. And like you said, the speed, way too quick. Way too quick. So at this point, you know... The flight controller from the radio tower began to hurriedly tell the flight to turn on ahead of 80 degrees. And the crew acknowledged this instruction, but they realized that it was going to be difficult to turn at that angle and line up correctly. In fact, this would make it more than likely to cause the plane to overshoot the angle that they needed to to get on the runway. Yes. And that's exactly what happened. So on the runway is something called a localizer which is basically like a beam that marks the center line of the runway. Mm -hmm. So basically it allows pilots to kind of like follow the guide if the runway isn't visible, which it wasn't visible on this morning. Right. The fog was insane. We talked about bad weather. Um, Even though it's July, there's a ridiculous amount of fog, Mm -hmm. rain. It's a storm. Yeah. I don't know how this flight got approved to take the Delta passengers from Manchester Airport who had their flights delayed. Right. I don't know how this happened, but the weather was just not good. So they have no visibility whatsoever. None. Not a drop. Drop of visibility? Is that a way you measure visibility? I don't know. (laughs) But they didn't have any of it. And so, like I said, they had this localizer, which was basically a guide for them to land Mm -hmm. um, and how to get on the runway. And like we said, the speed and the height that this plane was going was way too fast, way too high. It overshot like crazy um so what ended up happening was that flight 723 ended up overshooting this localizer yeah so now they were too far to one side that's wrong that's Mm -hmm. not safe at this point though they still had a chance to fix it but i think i mean given the title of our episode i think you can understand they did not fix that no um First officer, Burrell, he was trying to make a corrective turn back to the left in order to sync up with the localizer so that they could land. Um, Another problem that they now faced, the air traffic controller hadn't actually cleared them to land, so they couldn't leave their altitude of 3,000 feet without that clearance. Now they're stuck at that altitude. Right. So you might be wondering why the air traffic controller did not relieve them to land. Good, Good question. I am wondering that. He had become distracted trying to resolve a traffic conflict in a different sector of his section where two other planes were about to crash into each other. That is a big deal. So he's like, okay, flight 723 hold, and he's dealing with these people. Right. But because he left flight 723 in limbo, Mm. just hanging out in the air, they miss their angle to land because they're still not slowing down. Right, and they're still at that height. Right. Basically, they needed to be cleared to drop their height. Mm-hmm. So at this point, they're waiting for the air controller to say, hey, okay, you can go, you can drop below 3,000 yep. feet. Permission to land. Exactly. Yep. And they're not getting that. Right. So exactly what you said, they're in limbo right now. Still going extremely fast over what they needed to go. So with this, every second that they're waiting for clearance, the angle in which they need to land gets more and more fucked up. Yeah. And there's a great picture on this Medium website by Admiral Cloudberg that shows the exact like 
overshooting and the angles mm-hmm. and it's so it makes it very clear um i put it on the website um because it's so it made everything very clear to me when i was doing this research but you can basically see they overshot to the right mm-hmm. and then now while they're waiting for this clearance they overshot to the left so they're not lined up with that localizer that line and guide to say here's the runway so imagine being a passenger on the plane and it's like the plane's veering to the left and veering to the right and going up and going down and I would be That's so scary. Screaming. Oh my god. <laughs> and so by the time the controller clears flight 723 to land, the plane is overshot and it's now on the left of the direct path. Mm-hmm. And here's the part where it gets confusing because <laughs> it can, it brings in the glide slope, which is again By the end of this, guys, you, we're all going to go fly a plane for fun (laughs) because we can do it. But in this part of the journey, the flight now was too high above the glide slope, which is something that guides the plane down at the correct angle to reach the runway threshold. Basically, all the safety stuff is fucked. Completely fucked. Everything that's in place to give them a safe and smooth landing, they've just thrown it to the wind. Yep. Yep. So normally what would happen is that the plane would establish itself on the localizer, which flight 723 did not do Mm -hmm. because it overshot to the right and then the left, and then fly until it intercepts the glide slope from below, which this flight has now overshot to the left and is still too high at Mm -hmm. 3,000 feet. And at this point, uh, flight 723 was flying at 206 knots, which is 46 knots faster than recommended at this stage of the descent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now this puts us at 11.06 a.m. Captain Steele is realizing, oh my God, we haven't been cleared to land. Mm-hmm. So he radios air traffic control. And air traffic is like, yeah, yeah, that's fine, land, quick, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, like <laughs> yeah. rushing it because they're dealing with a potential... Right. Plane collision. He's not really paying attention to Flight 723 at this point. Yeah. So at 11.06 a.m., they lined up the localizer. They still weren't at the right angle for landing. So on this specific model plane that we talked about, to fix this issue, you have to change what mode you're on with the controls. Mm -hmm. So they needed to be in something called approach mode that would help bring them to the right angle, even if they were above it, which is exactly what is going on here. Like, this was still fixable at this point. Right. Right. Someone cranked the knob with the different modes all the way to the last one. Mm -hmm. But if you guys remember, we talked about how the planes acquired from Northeast Airlines during the merge had to undergo some changes so that they matched the same settings and technology as Delta's planes. Northeast planes had their approach mode setting on the last one on the knob, but Delta planes didn't. Right. So whoever cranked the knob all the way to the last one was mentally thinking they were in a northeast plane. Right. They hadn't gotten used to the idea that the delta planes didn't have that setting on that location of the knob. Right. I kind of understood it like a gear shift in a car. Right. Like you you and I know I I'm pretty sure all cars are very similar in this regard where the top spot is park and mm-hmm. then you pull all the way down and it's drive. Yes. And you're uh, how many times do you look at that when you pull the gear shift? I'm I know it goes into drive. Right. When I pull it all the way back and it stops, that's drive. It doesn't go any further. So I'm guessing that's what this person, they don't know who it was specifically. It's unclear, but that's what they're guessing happened is that yeah. oh, his gut reaction, how like you know, he just turned it. 
right. that's what he did. That's what he always did. So the fact that it changed the modes and now he was doing a, a go-around approach, that yeah. fucked everything up. So this go-around mode or the go-around approach, which now the plane is set to, it sends the wrong signals to air traffic control mm. because this mode basically means, never mind, we're not going to land, we're abandoning the landing. Right. So air traffic control is like, okay, don't even worry about it, we're good, <laughs> okay, flight 723, whatever, we're still dealing with this other crash. Yeah, yeah. No one noticed this at first, that the plane was in the wrong mode. Which is terrible because this mode, instead of you know, doing whatever to pair for landing, it actually even initiated a climb. Yeah. So I don't, it doesn't take a genius. That's the opposite of what they wanted. Right. It, it means you're not going to land. It's like right. abandon landing, put this plane into this mode, we're not going to land anymore. Right. So the fact that they're trying to land a plane on this setting, Ooh. it's not good. It's not good. It is not good. So... Now, the pilots were trying to figure out how to get down on this glide slope. Mm -hmm. Basically, like, how they were supposed to get down and descend safely. However, at this point, the flight had passed over the critical outer marker, 200 feet above the glide slope, which is what they needed to be at. Um, And that's not something they could fix at the speed they were going at, which was still 206 knots. Too fast and way too high still. So... Mm, you know, they're fucked at this point. To make matters worse, our Parkinson's-ridden <laughs> observer here, Joseph Burrell, he's supposed to be observing. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to touch anything. You're right. not supposed to breathe too loud. <laughs> you just sit there and you observe. Not in this situation, yeah. When you land a plane, you go through a landing checklist. Right. Where you call off different things, different settings. You know, you're saying things out loud. Everybody in the cockpit is on the same page. Right. Joseph Burrell, our observer, our observer <laughs> he starts calling things out way further down the landing checklist. Yep. And so the other two pilots look at each other because they're like, wait a second, he just skipped over like 10 steps. Yeah. Which means while they're trying to land the plane and get it synced with the localizer, Joseph Burrell has been touching shit in the plane, <laughs> doing yeah. steps on the checklist yeah. by himself. Ugh. So they don't know what he did, what he touched, what's going on. Right. He's not familiar with this plane at all. Right. Don't touch anything. He's touching fucking everything. <laughs> and, and because they're in the wrong mode still, the plane now had drifted to the left of the localizer. Mm-hmm. Air traffic control then picked this moment oh, good. out of all the chaos to radio them and say 723 is cleared to land, Tower 1199. So Captain Streel replied back to confirm, Great. stating 723, which means, like, yeah, we're coming, we're, we're about to land. Great. And it was at this point that First Officer Burrell finally noticed something was wrong with his flight director, Mm -hmm. which is basically like an altitude indicator based on where the plane was relative to the glide slope and the localizer, okay? And so it's theorized that he probably realized that the bar on this altitude locator was telling them to fly up, remember, because he put it in the wrong mode, so now they're going up. Um, even though the glide slope, of course, was below them. And this would be because of the go-around mode that was accidentally selected. Now, the scary part is is that, and I'm sure you guys have heard of this with 
um, other plane crashes that are more infamous, there's like a black box and like a voice recording in the cockpit. They were able to retrieve this, um, which is why KDU just said that what the radio tower said and what one of the pilots responded with. Mm -hmm. So picked up on the recorder now is some concerned voices and um, you can hear at this point the landing gear lowering and the spoilers arming and the slats extending, which indicates that they're gonna land, mm-hmm. but also at the same time, it's like, oh, they're gonna land, but the plane is also being given instructions to keep going up. So it's very confusing. Yeah. It's very confusing. It sounds like at this point, there was no going back. No. Truly. So what had happened was they had reached far past the point of no return where they can abandon their landing. Right. Um, the weather had gotten so bad that there was a shit ton of fog everywhere, Ugh. especially on the runway. Yeah. It was so bad that after this incident, it was confirmed that towards the end of the runway where this plane was headed, mm-hmm. the visibility was zero. Zero feet. So the pilot knows, okay, something's wrong. I'm just going to have to fly this fucking plane. Let's mm-hmm. do this. Yeah. He's landing. And he's so focused on waiting to break out of the clouds, that moment where you're underneath the clouds and you can see the runway. Yeah. He's so focused on this that they abandon the point of no return with yeah. their landing. And then it starts to dawn on Captain Streel that something's very wrong. And Joseph Burrell, the observer, shouted in panic. They all look up just in time to see that the plane was headed directly into the side of a 16.4 foot tall Mm seawall that was about 2,500 feet short and about 165 feet to the right of the threshold of the runway that they were supposed to land on. Yes. So they were at that point aligned with the glide slope and the only thing was that they weren't caught up with the runway. Mm -hmm. And that was, like you said, that's when the seawall came into play because the visibility was zero, which is ultimately, I think, there are so many factors that go into this. Yeah. Maybe if there, the visibility was a little bit more, they could have seen that they were going to... But I don't know. I think it was just too late. They were going so fast. Way too fast. And the last sound that was picked up from that cockpit recorder was a shout from Joseph Burrell, like yeah. you said. The crash. I can't even imagine how loud, how devastating. Just terrible, terrible shit. Um, The massive impact of the plane hitting the seawall immediately obliterated most of the front of the plane. Mm -hmm. So pieces of the plane were sent up and over the embankment of the seawall and into the water and all over the runway. Of course, I think it's obvious and goes without saying, the three pilots were killed immediately. Mm -hmm. And the remains of the plane plowed through that wall onto the runway with flames beginning to erupt metal screeching across the pavement there's zero visibility it's terrifying it's absolutely atrocious everything's on fire everything almost everyone on board was killed on impact except for two survivors yes so there were 89 souls on board and 87 died immediately mm-hmm. 20 year old leopold chenard was an air force sergeant he was returning to an air force base in alaska after a 30-day leave he spent it with his family in Vermont. I know. He and his fiance had just agreed to get married. Like literally the night before. Mm-hmm. 
Oh my god. He was sitting in the window seat in the last row, and after the crash, the woman sitting next to him undid his seatbelt for him, and he was able to drag himself out through a hole in the side of the plane and onto the runway, and then he just saw this terrifying scene. All just flames, dead bodies, Mm -hmm. awful stuff. And what was amazing was that there was a construction crew nearby. I'm not sure why there was a construction crew when there was zero visibility. Like, what were they doing? What could right. you have possibly done in that moment? Right. But um, only a few. those were the only people who actually physically witnessed the crash because mm-hmm. of the fog. And so they heard the explosion, saw the flames, and then rushed to the scene. And when they arrived, they found passengers mostly still stuck, strapped into their seats, lying on the runway, dead. The creepiest thing was that most of these passengers were headed to an event. Um, The event was an antique doll show. Yeah, fucking convention. Yeah. So uh, along with the dead bodies on the runway, there was hundreds of antique dolls also scattered about the flames and the debris. Mm Mm-hmm. If that doesn't make it the creepiest thing I've ever heard, can you imagine? It's like a horror movie. Literally. Ugh. So one construction worker went to go get help while two others began to look for survivors. That's when they found uh, Leopold, who was um, one of two survivors. Um, At this point, I I can't even fucking believe this. The controller was attempting to reach Flight 723. He literally tried radioing them three times. While he was attempting to radio them, there was an alarm that went off that indicated that approach lights had failed, which was a common false alarm. It happened all the time. So without even thinking, he just switched it off. (laughs) He just switched it off. And so then the controller then called ground control and asked if they had heard from Flight 723. And don't you worry, the ground control confidently replied, oh, yeah. Flight 723 is currently taxiing to its parking spot. No big deal. They're on their way. Turns out they had mixed up another flight. A a flight had landed just minutes before this one Mm -hmm. crashed, and it was Delta Flight 623. And they had landed, and Uh, everything was fine. And so that's what this ground control was mixing up with. (laughs) I can't. It's just... It's so fucking... uh, it took air traffic control to get an alert from firefighters because airport firefighters had to call air traffic for permission to cross another runway to enter the scene. Right. And this is when air traffic was like, wait, wait why what? do you have to? <laughs> oh, oh my God, fire, like yeah. crisis. Yep. Nine minutes it took. It took nine minutes for them to get help. And thank God. Oh my God. So... When air traffic control had heard that supposedly this flight 723 landed safely, they tried to schedule two other planes to land on that same runway. Oh my God. But those two planes, thank God, abandoned their landing because of the weather conditions and low visibility on the runway. That is just by the grace of fucking God. It was so bad, the visibility, that... People are looking out onto the runway and they're not seeing the billowing smoke, the flames, right. because the fog was that thick that it was concealing all of this. Right. And of course, it being on the, the ocean is not right. going to help. Right. It's ridiculous and so sad. Mm-hmm. 
Man, it's amazing that those two planes didn't land. So rescuers located the two survivors, but this second survivor ended up passing away just two hours later. Mm-hmm. The other survivor was Leopold, who we mentioned before. Right. He had burns on over 85% of his body, and so obviously he's in critical condition. Right. He was able to tell authorities his account of what happened, and he actually was able to remain optimistic and even funny during the next couple days, and he was noted as a Boston hero. Yes. Especially his love story with his fiance. Yeah. Very cute. Very cute. One of the craziest things I've ever heard, which it's little things going right. Yep. The two planes not landing, they abandoned at the last minute. There was actually going to be 84 passengers making the total on the plane, 90 Mm -hmm. with crew. But a businessman named Charles Mealy, he decided at the very last minute that because of the delay caused by the stopover in Manchester, he could probably get to his meeting in Boston faster if he took a car. Which was smart. He was actively sitting on the plane. Yeah. Actively sitting on the plane. And takeoff is continued to be delayed. They're delaying it. They're delaying it. The fog is so bad. They're waiting. He actually convinced a stewardess, and then he convinced the pilot to let him off. And they turn the plane around on the run. It's still on the runway. Yeah. They drive the plane back to the terminal and let him off. Oh, my God. And they even made an announcement that if anyone else wanted to get off, that they could do so. And no one else did. Wow. That is the luckiest man ever. Someone was looking out for him that day. Yeah. No joke. He was interviewed in an article, and he's like, I, he's, he's like, I couldn't even have imagined. Yeah, yeah. He was so sad. He, of course. Realized, like, 89 people. Yeah. Would have been 90. Yeah. It would have been 90. There's no surviving that. Well, of course, Leopold Chouinard did. And um, like you said, 80% of his body, third degree burns. It's, oh my God. He had severe injuries to his legs as well. Um, So over the course of the next few months, Leopold had many moments where the doctors were like, this guy's going to do it. He's going to fucking do it. August 1st, he underwent his first surgery on his leg where the surgeons attempted to find enough healthy skin to graft the burns over his bodies. On August 13th, however, they ended up amputating both of his legs. Wow. I know. And then over the next three months, he went under many, many complicated skin grafts. Um, For those of you who don't know, burn victims are very susceptible to disease and um, illness because their immune systems are, for lack of better words, fried. Um, They have such vulnerable... Their skin is non-existent. Right. It's all... They are just so vulnerable to horrible, awful things. They're like a gaping wound... (laughs) Waiting to be infected. Yep. Your skin is your first line of defense with your immune system, and so if your skin is burned away, you're you're screwed. Yeah. And he had third degree burns, eighty percent of his body. That is significant. I'm surprised he survived even initially, mm-hmm. because that is and the fact that he like crawled out of his seat and like went to almost like be in the view of the the rescuers. Blows my mind because his legs were so... I'm imagining broken and crushed. I believe they said one of his feet was completely crushed. So, you know, the fact that he had them amputated was probably... I mean, was for the best, you know. But it also made him more susceptible to infection and illness because, you know, now you have gaping wounds where you uh, amputate the legs. 
So those are healing wounds that I can't imagine healed very well if they've got uh, no. third degree burns, you know? So he was just susceptible to so much, so much. And unfortunately that was his demise. Mm -hmm. December 3rd, he contracted pneumonia. December 5th, his kidneys began to fail. And on December 11th of 1973, about four and a half months after the plane crash happened, Leopold Chouinard died of pneumonia in the hospital surrounded by his family. And he would now be the 89th and final victim of Delta Flight 723. Mm -hmm. Terrible stuff. Heartbreaking. It's insane that there were as many factors as there were leading up to the crash. You have the weather. You have the visibility. Yep. The visibility also wasn't properly communicated. Right. Um, after the crash, authorities at the airport were trying to say, no, it was totally fine. It was completely safe to land the plane. Visibility was great. And it's like this plane was smoldering on the runway for <laughs> nine whole mm -hmm. minutes. If that construction crew hadn't heard the impact and seen mm -hmm. what had happened, right. the plane would have just been left. Like other planes would have been landing. It's just... I think that's proof in that the air traffic controller tried radioing the flight three times. Yep. Obviously, he couldn't see that nothing, what had happened. He couldn't see anything. Right. The visibility, and then that's, like you said, that's another factor why they crashed. The pilots were expecting to clear the clouds and then be ready to land. That never happened because they weren't going to clear anything. Right. It's a dense wall of fog. Everything looks like clouds. Oh. Um, another factor to the crash was the changes that were made to the plane systems as a result of the merger. Right. Um, I mean, you could undergo months of training, which is what these new pilots did. But if you've been doing something for years, right. I mean, Captain Streel, he had been a pilot on these kinds of planes for 17 years. That's such a long time. That's muscle memory. That's force of habit. That's mm -hmm. You don't break that from a couple months of training. No. So... It wasn't for sure that he was the one that changed the dial for the mode, but whoever did, it was force of habit. Right. Not, which not is unfortunate. Fault. Yeah, which is unfortunate, but not their fault necessarily. Should they have been checking what they were doing? Yes. For sure. But they were also panicking so bad. It's one of those things that like you'd like to think, what would I do in the moment? Right. But you have no way of knowing. You have no way of knowing. No way. Um, another factor was that an observer with Parkinson's, who was not qualified... <laughs> He's not supposed to be touching things. He's actively touching shit on the plane. Right. Air traffic control was a hot mess. <laughs> the plane was flying way too fast. Way too fast. It was just too much. And it was a mixture of human error, system failure. It, yep. It's so unfortunate. It is. It really is. And I think human error probably plays the highest role in this. Yeah. And you bring up a lot of really good points. And again, we're nurses. We love everyone. We take care of people. That's our jobs. So we would never bash on anyone with a disease, especially like Parkinson's. It's a debilitating disease. It's sad. It's horrible to go through. However, there are other jobs you can have with that disease. Right. All of those things are reasons why you shouldn't be flying a plane. Uh, yes. Because it's literally the shake, the tremors, mm -hmm. like I said, are the signature of the disease. Yep. Cognitive. Cognitive. It affects your brain, your thinking. And they said, oh, it's, it was mild Parkinson's. Well, no. If he had to take a leave of absence. Yeah. What? It was significant. Yeah. yeah. Um, this actually is not the first plane that has crashed into a seawall. 
Um, there's actually another one in San Francisco in 2013. Oh. And there were also, at least that we know of, two other plane crashes caused by planes accidentally being switched into the go-around mode during preparation to land. Really? Which is what happened here. That's crazy. The National Transportation Safety Board had to do a massive investigation, of course. Right. This was their statement for the cause of the crash. The failure of the flight crew to monitor altitude and to recognize passage of the aircraft through the approach decision height during an unstabilized decision approach conducted in rapidly changing meteorological conditions. The unstabilized nature of the approach was due initially to the aircraft's passage of the outer marking above the glide slope at an excessive airspeed was therefore compounded by the flight crew's preoccupation with the questionable information presented by the flight director's system. Right. The poor positioning of the flight for the approach was in part the result of non-standard air traffic control services. Mm-hmm. They ended up after this crash revamping how they did air traffic control just because okay. that was so much of an error in this crash. Right. I mean, it ended up being 89 people. All 89 people on this plane died. Right. And I think the one good thing that came from this is the revamped safety controls. Mm-hmm. And it sucks that this is what had to happen in order for that, those safety measures to be brought forward. Before this, a Delta Airlines crash that resulted in fatalities had not happened since 1953. Holy shit. 20 years. Planes existed that far back? <laughs> Jesus. Remember the Flying Circus disaster? Uh, oh, that's right. <laughs> you mean the paper mache toothpicks? Yeah. yeah, I do remember that. This crash is a huge piece of Boston history as well as New England history. Of course. Especially because of Leopold, who everyone was rooting for mm-hmm. as a sole survivor. Fun fact, Leopold Chenard, who we've talked about, he is not officially counted as a casualty for this plane crash. There's an old policy that stated deaths only within seven days of a plane crash would be counted towards the fatality count. Mm-hmm. This is why in some articles you'll see the crash still says that there's one survivor because he wasn't counted towards the fatality count. He's still regarded as surviving that crash, even Mm -hmm. though he died as a direct result. Right, right. Wow. Yeah, and he's a hero in Boston history to this day. Yes. That poor guy. Man, and, you know, while reading this, I was thinking, I would never get on a plane before the year, like, 2000. (laughs) Because <laughs> I feel like, I only said that because I had been, I'd been on planes in like the early 2000s when I was a child, but reading about like 1973, mm-hmm. uh, that's back when people used to dress up to go on a plane. That's right. That's when the plane was basically carried by the cigarette smoke inside the cabin. That's right. Because you could absolutely smoke on a plane and you were encouraged <sighs> to. No, thank you. I would never... No. I picture this whole thing happening in, like, sepia tone. I don't know why. Yeah, seriously. You know, like, old, like, hey, see? And there's people, oh, God. The pictures of the crash are all in black and white and film. Yep. 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 And we posted, you know, we'll post some of those pictures because they are, they're brutal. They're really sad. Yeah. I think the craziest part of this for me is that it was an antique doll convention, like, group of people. Oh, my God, I know. So creepy just all the different things and i wonder so too much. if they had completely bypassed manchester new hampshire and hadn't picked up those people oh. if they had gone from burlington straight to logan like they mm-hmm. would have the fog wouldn't have been that bad and they would have landed yep and less ca- casualties for sure yeah yeah 
Yeah, so that's the case of Delta Airlines Flight 723, the largest airline crash in New England state history. Man, it's very interesting. Do you guys feel like you could uh, fly a plane now? Or at least land one? <laughs> Maybe uh, do a little b better job than these guys did. Oh, God. I know, it's so sad. Human error, system failure, the weather. The weather. It's like these people have never been to New England before. <laughs> Come on now. I know. Well, anyways... If you guys want to tell us what you think about this case, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TrueCrimeNE. Oh, lowercase. Or you can email us at TrueCrimeNE at gmail.com. Or you can find us on our website, TrueCrimeNE.com. We have a submission tool. You can send us questions, comments, concerns, cases that you'd like for us to cover or just to discuss with us. We would love if they were New England-based. Please and thank you. That would be great. We have a specific call-out currently for Rhode Island cases because, mm -hmm. you know, it's surprising. It's the smallest state in the country. You would think that it had a million crimes. No, <laughs> hard to find crimes in Rhode Island. And obviously we want to give equal representation to mm -hmm. all six of the states of New England. Although it is hard when Rhode Island is so teeny. Yes. So if you have ones that you know of personally, please let us know. We invite all cases of all kinds, unless they are mob related. Those are not interesting to us and we don't want to be enemies with the mob and unfortunately that's what a lot of cases out of rhode island are yes so we would like to be a little different if at all possible yes please i know we're asking a lot rhode island <laughs> but if you could um but with that we'll see you guys next week bye goodbye